Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides. Yes, welcome back. Uh, in this episode, we are going to provide you with a brief background on the best-selling and award-winning author Carmen Maria Machado. Machado is the author of In the Dream House, The Low, Low Woods, and Her Body and Other Stories. She's also written numerous other essays and short stories. Then we will share an interview we did with Machado. On Thursday, October 20th, the Sydney Harmon Writer-in-Resident program held a reading and conversation with Machado and invited us to interview her as part of that event. So, a special thanks to Professor Esther Allen and the Harmon program for including us in this event. We will include an abridged version of the reading that Machado did that evening called The Tour. This was recently published in McSweeney's magazine and will be included in Machado's upcoming book project as well. During the interview, we discussed Machado's writing style, the appeal of the horror genre, collaborating with others, and writing queerness into her works. After our interview, there was a brief Q&A with audience members, which we will include in the episode as well. Finally, at the end of the episode, we'll wrap up with a couple of recommendations for other LGBTQIA Latinx books we think are worth checking out. We're going to keep this background section short as we want to let Carmen and the interview speak for themselves. If you want to check out more of Carmen's works, we encourage you to visit her website, CarmenMariaMachado.com. And if you're interested in reading her books in Spanish, they are all available in translation as well. Carmen Maria Machado is a Latina short story author, essayist, and critic. She has been published in various magazines, journals, and other publications over the years. She was a finalist for the National Book Award, the Nebula Award for Best Novelette. She won the Bard Fiction Prize, the Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Fiction, and for LGBTQ nonfiction, among others. Her memoir, In the Dream House, won the Folio Prize in 2021. Machado holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and has received various fellowships and residencies, including her current residency, the Sidney Harmon Writer-in-Residence here at Baruch College. Machado's grandparents fled Cuba for the U.S. when they were only 18 years old, and Machado states that she grew up in a very religious household, which played a role in the guilt she felt about her queer sexuality for many years. So without further delay, here's our interview with Carmen Maria Machado. I wouldn't have seen her if the baby hadn't cried across the platform, but the baby did, and I do. Past the beleaguered mother dandling the weeping infant and the dour teenager fussing with their phone, a tall, elegant smear of a woman is watching me from a train window. I recognize her, though I don't know where from. Her lips are parted slightly, like she's about to speak. She presses an open paperback to the glass. On the title page, a name and a phone number. Naomi. 
I memorize the number with a mnemonic poem. The train takes a breath, begins to move. As soon as it is gone, I feel a wobbling beneath my feet, the sensation of stepping off a treadmill. By the time I emerge above the earth, I have shifted. The poem remains. I hate this part, the way I walk right afterward. I'm sure I look drunk or ill. I keep stopping and placing my palms against the sides of buildings as if testing their sturdiness. I get to the venue, down a bottle of water, and flip through the book I'm supposed to be talking about. I barely recognize myself. I went to Spain, learned Spanish. Why? I look for all the usual suspects in the text, but this version of myself is coy, coyer than I knew possible. The copy on the back is helpful. It is about ambition, language, inheritance. It is about the dissolution of comfort zones. A critic calls it brave, fucking deadly. You're one of them, right? A man in the audience asks. He has that face. Uh, this is more of a comment than a question guy. They always look like him, like they walked in off the street because they saw someone else commanding an audience. I read online that you were, if you are, isn't it slightly more appropriate to call this a work of fiction? No, I say. But somewhere else, in some other place, you'd be saying yes, right? I choose not to answer that question, I say, even though it is not really a question. In this timeline, I seem to have developed a reputation for being a real diva anyway. Prickly. Unkind. Despite my unspeakable rudeness, I feel the audience leaning closer. In that moment, I realize where I recognize the woman from. I'd swiped her away earlier that day after looking at her profile for seven minutes. She'd been making the same face as she'd made on the train window, like she was about to open her mouth and speak. I sent her to the left because I couldn't bear to think what she would tell me. They call it the Collapse. What happened with Solo 9? Ever since the comet appeared, scientists have been on the news doing their best to explain the unexplainable to a population who still doesn't quite grasp climate change. The scientists are not great. They describe the situation with a series of clumsy metaphors. A baseball going through a house of cards. A needle plunging through a weave of heavy rope. A sweater snagging on an exposed nail. A bowling ball blowing through a crowd of pins. Time, space, continuum, disruption, personal wormhole, something, something. They handle the props awkwardly. We can measure it with machines, they promise. This is possible. That is probable. It could be. Maybe. They're the ones who start calling us moles, which mixes the metaphor, but they think it's a better nickname than worms. The pivot from the cliché exposes it. I've never hated an animal more. One of the scientists, Dr. Joan Sooth, soon becomes famous. She declares things where others hedge. People call her Auntie Joan because she is a woman and everyone wants their mother to have a beloved sister who understands what their mother does not. The recent astronomical event has somehow modified the local physical laws here on Earth, Auntie Joan tells us in the week after Solo 9. 
Every conscious choice results in a proliferation of near-identical universes. Normally, they would be inaccessible to one another, but now, for some reason, for some people, they aren't. And for some of those people, they remain aware of where they've come from. They are continuous. Comedians sit across from her on late-night shows, fiddling soberly with their prompt cards. just wanted to get started here with, you know, I think it was mentioned before, the different books that you've published and the essays and so on. You've published in various mediums and genres. What aspects of writing in each genre do you most appreciate? I mean, fiction, you know, I think gives me an opportunity. I mean, all, all of my writing is very has has a strong autobiographical component. And I guess what percentage of it sort of depends on the project. Fiction, there's a real pleasure to being able to take my life and my experiences and what's happening and then have this like fictional tool at my disposal. So like adding like magic or adding, you know, like thinking about it through like a horror lens or, or you know, lens of a certain genre or a certain form. And that's like a real pleasure and something I love about fiction. And then nonfiction, I mean, it's more of a challenge because I don't have those tools at my disposal. And so I, I mean, I have different tools. And so I have to think about like, how do I sort of tease meaning out of my life, which is like, I mean, isn't that all what we're trying to do with our lives, right? Is like tease meaning out of our lives. And so I think for me, like that process, it offers a certain pleasure and like the organization of my thoughts about just like, yeah, like who I am, where I exist in the world. Like that's a big part of it. And fiction, I get to do all that, but also there's like a strong play element, which I really enjoy. And is like probably why I prefer fiction a little more, <laughs> to be quite honest, but fair. Yeah. Uh, we would like to continue talking about your writing practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in your story, uh, for instance, you were mentioning uh, the idea or the concept and the practice of the fragment, yeah, mm -hmm. the story that you just read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, we were uh, when we were like preparing for the interview, we were discussing how your writing style could be described uh, as a mosaic. Yeah, mm -hmm. and we wanted to uh, learn a little bit more on what is your process of organizing these different pieces, especially because also you work with uh, uh, short stories, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, but also mm -hmm. thinking about the comic as well that is composed of different like uh, uh, smaller sections, right, yeah, right, that are right. like uh, uh, how do you put all these different stories together? How is your process of, of, of organizing the whole? I have always been really interested in fragmentation or like telling stories sort of like deriving meaning from pieces, which I think in some ways is like just like a human instinct, like that process of like the gestalt or like looking at like things that have lots of bits and like, you know, creating meaning. It's like the part of me that wanted to do like those like uh, 3D puzzles as a kid, mm -hmm. you know, the, where you just kind of cross your eyes a little and you can see the shape. And I feel like that process is like how it's how we sort of generate story. And if you think about it, that's really just how story exists is like, discrete pieces of information sort of come together and like the storyteller or the perceiver of the story like give it meaning and so for me a lot of work you know I, I sort of think in fragments and a lot of my process is trying to figure out like how they relate to each other so an early story of mine in my first book especially heinous which is told in these very sort of like dis these very like concrete little little bits I remember taking it to class and a professor of mine describing 
um, it as like a, a scatter plot graph, which like I don't remember much math because I <laughs> took the last math class I took was a very long time ago. But the one math I do remember is the scatter, right? You know, you have little bits of data and then like, there's like a best fit line that goes through mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can't think of actually a better analogy for like the process of writing the kind of work that I do than that, where it's like there are these pieces of information that like when you look at them, like generate a, a, a sort of a kind of meaning. Um and I've always, yeah, I love short stories for the same reason, where, like, when I read a short story collection that I really enjoy, often the stories are, like, speaking to each other in these, like, interesting ways. And I'm getting, not just to read each story by itself, but also think about, like, how they're speaking to each other, mm-hmm. how they're relating to each other. And it's just this, like, really sort of beautiful part of the process. So, yeah, I, I feel like it's just, like, a, a muscle that I'm constantly exercising as a, mm-hmm. as a writer and as a reader, too. I mean, I think stories, I love stories that feel like, where, like, every time you move to a new section, you're like, where is this going? And then eventually, like, suddenly it, like, all comes into focus and you're like, aha, mm-hmm. I've been in the hands of a master the whole time, mm-hmm. um, which is such a good feeling as a reader, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely got that reading, uh, that feeling reading, especially heinous. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, the story you just read, the timelines also like mm, kind of mm-hmm. could be considered different. Like, totally. totally. I'm looking forward to see how they come together. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. <laughs> and... One of the areas that you write in a lot uh, that I've noticed anyway is the horror genre, right? So what is it about horror that speaks to you as a genre and what's inspired you to write in it? Like, did you have any influences in the horror genre in particular or is it just in you? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I also am teaching, I mean, the class I'm teaching here at Brook is in fact a horror writing class among other genres. So if it's appropriate to answer this question now, um, (laughs) horror is just a genre that's always really spoken to me. And I say this as like a, as like a certified scaredy cat. I mean, when I was a small child, (laughs) I would like read horror novels and be up all night. My mother would be completely hysterical because I would like not sleep and I had the lights on and I'd be like in tears and she'd be like, why did you read Arl Stein? And then I, you know, then she'd take it away from me and then I'd borrow another Arl Stein, another Goosebumps book from a kid at school. And then I would (laughs) cycle star all over again. And my mother was just beside herself. So I feel like, you know, for me, and so it seems like kind of weird that I would like horror that like it would speak to me as like a deeply anxious person. But I think for me, horror has this quality of being a controlled, it's like a roller coaster. It's like a controlled fear. So it's like, you know, I know that it's fiction. I know that, I mean, it's funny because I, you know, I watch horror movies and I can watch, I could watch basically anything. I'm like pretty unflappable was a horror movie viewer, but like over COVID, my, um, my spouse was watching a lot of um, Great British Bake Off and I couldn't watch it because I saw one episode and a woman knocked her tart off the, like by accident off the table and it hit the ground and I was like completely hysterical and I was like, and my, my spouse was like, you watched someone's head get cut off the other day and like didn't like, and I was like, yes, but like that was fake and this is real human suffering. And, like that woman made a tart and it's now on the floor and like I can't, that's actually too much for me. I can't deal with it. So I feel like for me, like horror has this like pleasure and quality of being, you know, it's like this genre that like offers us so much. And I think really like brings me as like a, as a viewer, as a reader, and also as a writer, like kind of face to face with my own fear and the things that make me that like really cut me to the quick. And so, you know, it just, it just like offers me a lot of pleasure, like as a reader and as a viewer, and then also as a writer, it just speaks to me, like the tools of horror, the aesthetics of horror, like they really speak to me in this way. I mean, I write in other genres and like, you know, I've, I, and I, sometimes I borrowed those techniques for other things, but I just feel like it's a genre that like best, I feel like encapsulates my project, which is like the horror of being alive 
the horror of having a body, the horror of being a woman, the hor- you know what I mean? Like the, the, the horror of just like being in the world in various iterations and sort of like how that manifests. And so that's just, yeah, it's the genre that speaks to me. We wanted to also to learn a little bit more on how urban layers, uh, urban legends inform your work. Mm-hmm. And especially mm-hmm. we're thinking about the Lolo Woods, mm-hmm. right? And also like uh, in a, uh, another aspect of, of, of that work is also setting. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the fact that it's a, a, a comic about the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. So we wanted to also ask about that, like how like uh, urban legends, but also like uh, setting historical time periods, dystopian or post-apocalyptic worlds inform uh, your literature? Mm -hmm. So the Lolo Woods is kind of interesting because, you know, I had this dream. So I don't actually write from my dreams very often. I feel like people assume that's like a thing writers do. And most of the time I'll write down my dreams and they're complete gibberish. So that's just like not helpful. I'll like have a thought, (laughs) write it down, and then wake up the next day and be like, what is this? Does this make any sense? But I did actually have a dream the premise of that of that comic is that these two friends who are these like two queer teens and like sort of a in like a uh, uh, industrial like sort of post industrial uh, coal mining town in Pennsylvania in the nineties wake up one day at a movie theater and they have no memory of having watched the movie that they had come to see and so they just there's like a big blank hole where like the memory of the movie should be and so they're trying to sort of solve the mystery of like what's happened to them among other things and you know it's it's sort of set. It, I, I was sort of thinking a lot about, and I mean, it's funny because I, you know, I don't, like, I was not a, I was a child in the 90s. I wasn't a teenager. And so, like, in some ways, I'm sort of imagining, like, like, imagining, you know, my queer adolescence, which was, like, in the 2000s, is sort of a different, kind of a different energy. But, like, I am really interested in what it meant to be queer in the 90s. I was really interested in sort of being from Pennsylvania, like what I call the Pennsylvania Gothic. So like mm-hmm. the sort of the the ways in which Pennsylvania has been affected by things like industry. Also the environmental disaster of Centralia, Pennsylvania, which is, um that's a, so the town that I, in the book is called Shudder to Think, it's fictional, but I base it on this town Centralia, which is a town in Pennsylvania that's been on fire for like 70 years or something. So something lit a coal seam on fire in like the 60s and the town has just so it's the it was the um inspiration behind silent hill if you've seen silent hill you've played the silent hill games um so the town is just like there's just smoke kind of coming out of the ground constantly and there used to be a population that lived there and then since then they've all been relocated or they've died and no one's come back and the town is now this weird ghost town and i was just really interested in sort of this these questions of and like there's also there's monsters there's like asylums like i was just sort of interested in these like factors that I think like, I guess what I think of is like these sort of gothic factors and then urban legends, monsters, that that also informed the work as well. And also like myth. I mean, I feel like I was sort of drawing on a lot of inspirations for that comic, but it was the first time that I'd ever really had a chance to write something almost like actually more removed from me than normal. Like I feel like a lot of my stories are in first person and a lot of my stories I think involve like a very large sort of strain of myself. And there were, there are bits of myself in that comic, but also those, those girls felt so distinct to me, those characters and like really separate. Those of us who were teens in the nineties, <laughs> we can speak to, I think it felt accurate to great, me. Great. 
You mentioned the the scene at the movie theater mm -hmm. that starts at the Lolo Woods, but also you uh, you mentioned also the uh, the short story on the on uh, Law and Order SVU, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanna like uh, read a short uh, quote from mm -hmm. the story to uh, to kind of like introduce the question, right? Uh, so that uh, from especially Hennes, uh, there's a quote that says uh, the 65th story is about a world that washes you and me and everyone. Watches our suffering like it is a game. Can't stop. Can't tear themselves away. If they could stop, we could stop. But they won't, so we can't. Yeah, end of quote. Yeah. Um, could you share your views on expectatorship, uh, your own practices as a viewer? You, mm -hmm. you were mentioning also like this, uh, this, uh, uh sure. constant watching, yeah, of sure. uh, audiovisual materials and how, uh, do you integrate, uh, those audiovisual materials into your stories? Yeah. So the story, especially heinous is I took the first. So if you haven't read it, I took the first. 272 episodes of Law and Order SVU, which is the first 12 seasons of the show. <laughs> and I took all the titles of every episode and I wrote a sort of surreal Lynchian novella starring uh, Benson and Stabler in sort of a surreal version of New York with like ghosts and doppelgangers and monsters and things. And the story... <laughs> I mean, at first when I started doing it, it was more like, can I do this? Like, if, <laughs> am I able to do this? But at some point, it, I was thinking a lot about the fact that, like, I watch Law and SVU, like, a lot. Like, I, I just went where I see the first 30 seconds and I'm like, oh, that's the one where I guess I know all of them. It's like, for, for up till a certain point. But of course, watching, you know, you know, watching what is like essentially propaganda that is also like very sort of cavalier about, like sexual violence in many interesting ways, like has its own sort of moral complications, right? And so I began thinking kind of about what does it mean to like watch, like for example, a cop show mm -hmm. or a police procedural? What does it mean to like watch a show that like, you know, is like mirroring our culture in interesting ways? And I just had a lot of like, I don't know, a lot of like complicated feelings about that. And so in the story, there's this like, we're sort, it's sort of like commenting on the fact that we like been, and like someone once described reading that story as like, it's like, it's like binging, what do they say? It's like a binge watch in hell. Like you're just like <laughs> watching, you're like watching it all at once. And it's like, you're just seeing them like, so they're sort of moving by so quickly. And I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I guess I was really just interested in this question of like, yeah, what does it mean to be like morally culpable in like the media we watch or the the stuff we read, which I feel like is actually a fairly complicated question. I don't think it's as simple as like don't watch bad things because that's not how we consume art. Mm -hmm. That's not how, you know, we should engage with like the the stuff that we watch, but we should always be thinking about like what it means that certain things get made and certain things don't get made or what it means that certain work gets published and certain work doesn't get published and like, you know, where we're sort of putting our attention and the kind of the the way that we're thinking about the media that we consume the art that we're interested in like and just asking those questions so that just became like a little kind of a lens into like this question that I and a thing I do a lot when I'm writing is I'll like make characters ask questions that I'm also asking mm -hmm. which is a great little trick if you're trying to you know figure out how to like you just get the characters to be like hmm and then like put your own thought into their head for me the 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 work that resonated with me the most was the Lolo Woods. I mean, it wasn't just the 90s thing, but there was just something about that story that was really profound to me. And I just thought about that that idea of someone taking a story of yours and bringing it to life through that visual, mm -hmm. you know? So is there something that, you know, can you describe the experience of collaborating with Danny sure, on that? Yeah. And, you know, to what extent was it collaborative? 
any back and forth, you know, and if you have any plans to collaborate with other creators in the future, if you can spoil it. Sure. Well, I don't have any current plans to work on another comic, though I totally would because I actually really loved it. It was a great experience. Um, I'm just at this point just really, really busy, but I, I would totally do it again. You know, it's funny because when they first, when DC first reached out to me to ask if I wanted to do a horror comic with them, it was then an imprint, it was Vertigo, but then of course Vertigo got folded back into, and whatever. Anyway, mm -hmm. so they were like, reached out and I was like, you know, I love Vertigo comics. I love horror comics. Um, yeah, I'd love to write for you. But I was like, I don't know one thing about writing comics. Like, I've never done it. I've never even seen, like, I don't even know how you do it, like, how you write the material. And they were like, we'll, we'll show you, no worries. And so they were, like, showing me what a script looks like. And it's this weird process that's sort of like a halfway point between like writing, say, like a like a film script and writing prose. So it's like because you're 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 writing, you can do things like write narration and you write like prosy elements, but also you're literally giving instructions to an artist. So like you know, I would say it would be like, here's the dialogue on this page. Okay, this panel, you know, we're these are the, it's these two girls. We're seeing this. We're looking at them from the front. Okay, now we're looking at them from the back of their heads. Okay, now we're like up over here somewhere. And like now and like. It was this very, like, granular way of thinking. Like, I just never had to think that way. And I remember, like, at some point, Joe Hill, who was my editor, was, like, telling me all the stuff that just never occurred to me. So he was like, okay. He was like, if there is a surprise, like a monster jumping out or something, you always want to put it on the, the even page so that you flip the page and the monster is there. You don't want it to be over here because your eyes always cheat to the right. Like you're always kind of looking ahead. And so mm -hmm. it's not going to be nearly as startling. And I was like, yes, yeah, so that never would have occurred to me in a million years. Like I never would have, because I don't, I don't write visually. That's not what I normally do. Like prose is prose, whatever. So like, I mean, I do write a little bit, but like, you know, mostly it's like, it's just words. And so stuff like that, you know, or thinking about, or I remember one time, like having the characters, like having a conversation while they're on a bike and like there are ones on like the handlebars or whatever and they're like talking um and he was like right now as you've written it they're just like we're just seeing like the same panel but he was like if you move the pov back behind like some trees then it's like something is watching them through the trees or if you move it like above their head that's like a different feeling than like being close up or like you know and so like i had to kind of rethink about like how i wanted to frame each of the, even though they're just like biking and having a conversation he was like moving sort of the functionally the camera around it's going to help give it like more energy so there was just this like really interesting sort of quality to it that I had never ever had to think about before. And what was nice is it actually gave me enough, it gave me uh, enough confidence to, cause I had taken a screenwriting class in college and had done very badly at it because I'm a prose writer by that's like what I'm good at. And I wrote like a, like a movie. And my professor was like, Carmen, this is not a movie. This is like, this is just, you just took a short, this is, she was like, it was just mostly description. Like, she was like, Carmen, this is not, this is not, you need dialogue. She was like, this is not right. Anyway, so I had like kind of lost confidence in that part of myself. But then after doing the script, I was like, oh, I feel like now I'm actually thinking visually in this way. And it gave me an opportunity to like, you know, decide to like think about writing like film scripts and TV scripts and things like that. So like, that was a real pleasure to get to like go through that process and then get to the other side and be like, oh, I can actually do this. This is actually doable for me. So potentially... A, a collaboration to do film or television in the I mean, future. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't complain. It's happening. So, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> um, and 
We want to address um, queer Latinidades. So that is the theme of our podcast season. Each season, we center our podcast around a theme. We started with Latinas, then we did Afro Latinidad. And this season, we're focusing on queer Latinidades. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and Baruch is currently celebrating the LGBTQI plus history month with the motto, claiming our past, celebrating our present, creating our future, mm. which I think is really great. So what are your views on the importance of the intersection of queer Latinidades in your work? Oh, that is what it, you're like, just a minor question. A How do you feel about the intersection of these two <laughs> massive pieces of your identity into this, into your work? You know, it's so funny. This is like making me think about when I, I went to Cuba with my brother in 2015, like that moment when it got like easy to go again mm-hmm. before everything got more complicated. And, and it was this really great chance to get to like meet family I had never met before. I had never been to Cuba before. We got to, you know, it was this really incredible thing. And I remember we were in Santa Clara, which is where my parent, my people are from. And my brother and I were like walking through the streets and we passed like a, a bar or something. And there was a sign out front that had like, too many rainbows, or not too many rainbows, but like more rainbows than you would think. And I was like staring at the sign for a minute, and I said to my brother, and I should, like, I don't speak, I speak a little Spanish, but like not very much. My brother is fluent. And I was like looking at the sign, and I said, is this a gay bar? Are we in front of a gay bar right now? And he looked at the sign, and he was like, I don't know, I can't tell. He said, I'm going to go talk to somebody. So he like walks over, and I watch him like have this like very long conversation with somebody. And he comes back and I was like, well, and he was like, I still don't know. <laughs> he was like, I think, he's like, I think so. But it's like, we had like a very like roundabout conversation about it that like, I feel like the answer might be yes, but like, it's not entirely clear to me. And, you know, and we were having like, throughout this trip, we were having a lot of conversations because like, you know, queer, it's funny because like they just passed marriage equality in Cuba, mm-hmm. like very recently, yeah, like mm-hmm. in the past like month or something. Yeah. Um, sorry, I know this is not about my work yet, but I'll get there. But like, I, I, I feel <laughs> like, you know, but like also I remember like at the time, like it's like they did, there was actually like, they was a pride in Santa Clara. I mm-hmm. wouldn't go because we weren't there the right time of year, but like that did exist. But also like there was this like, obviously there was this really fraught relationship with homosexuality and the government, like in, in with Fidel. And so there's just been this like very, very complicated thing. And I feel like I, that kind of, like those things kind of like moving around each other and kind of like, like, I feel like that's my relationship with it, which is that like, you know, there are pieces of my identity that feel, that feel like really important to me in various ways. And also I don't know that I've quite figured out how they relate to each other, if that makes any sense. Like that's, Speckle gl- graph that you were talking about. <laughs> right, right, the scatter plot graph. Yeah, exactly. The scatter, yes, the scatter plot graph of my, of my whole self. So, like, I feel like those things are, like, you know, they exist in relation to each other in ways I don't fully understand. Like, in ways that I think I'm still kind of beginning to, to sort of put together. Um, and I think that, like, I don't know, I always, I always think about that story about, like, the where it's, like, there's this sense of, I don't know. It's funny because we also like we met a lot of like queer Cubans. When we were there, like fr- like 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 friends of friends and things like that. So it's like there's something about like that that I don't know that that tension or that strangeness where it's like they're there but they're not there. It's like they exist sort of but they don't. So I, and I feel like there's just something about that 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 sort of like weird dance that feels like it exists in my work as well. I feel like that's not a very good answer. I'm not sure if that's like a curve like the, but it's I don't know. Like no, I think I, I th- yeah. feel like it really fits with everything else that you've been saying about your your writing in general. You know, and again, I like that visual of the scatter plot that yeah. you were talking about. It sounds like you know if we took a look at all of your works together, would we find that that path of 
that best fits, you know? Well, I feel like, I have two thoughts about this. I feel like on one hand, I also feel like the worst person to ask about their, like the the meaning of their work or like how this thing exists in their work is the author themselves. Because like most of what I do is completely unknown to me. I feel like when I'm writing and when I'm, you know, I just, it's like, I can, I can try to explain what I'm doing. But, like, I've had, like, academics, like, talk to me about, like, stuff they've written about my work. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds right. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's probably, that's probably, it's close. Um, and so, on one hand, I'm kind of like, yeah, like, I don't know. I feel like so much of what I do is is really unknown to me. Wait, and I just had another thought that I just went totally out of my head. Oh, never mind. doesn't matter. But, yeah. <laughs> I feel that way a lot lately. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, oh, I do remember it, actually. So, I also feel like the, the other piece of it is that, like, so much of my work... I feel like I am unhealthily obsessed with liminality. So I feel like so much of what I do in terms of like my, my relationship with the form, with genre, with like self is like how I exist. Like I always make this joke. It's not even really a joke, but it's like I have both won a prize for lesbian fiction and a prize for bisexual fiction. <laughs> like, and like I, I remember like realizing that I was like, that is, so funny to me that like I somehow am it's like both and it's like the simultaneous thing that like doesn't quite exist in the same space but like that's how I feel about like my sense of self when it comes to like my my like being Latina but like you know having a relationship with like my own sort of presentation with like language with queerness with like, like with gender like I feel like all these things I feel like I exist on this like border periphery but also that's all I want to write about is the border and the like that that's the thing that's the thing that like I feel like I'm constantly at and so but it's so I feel like I'm therefore singularly unable to like talk about it because I'm like I don't know I feel like I'm just like this all the time like I'm just like right in between and like writing into that ambiguity and writing into the thing that like the ways which I do not understand myself clearly it's also like uh, queerness uh, beyond sexuality as queerness as something that you cannot pinpoint that is always like a moving that's uh, yeah. transforming, right? And resisting definition. Totally, totally. And I think that like there's also something really interesting about the ways in which like I feel like I feel like for some reason we exist in this world right now where like people want to know what you are. And there's this desire to like pin you to the wall mm-hmm. with like the various pieces of your identity. And the fact is that, like, for most people, that you'll have a flexible relationship with that. Like, mm-hmm. there was a point in my life where I thought I was straight. I was not, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, There's a part of my, you know, like, I feel like my sense of, like, my sexuality, my gender, you know, how I think of, think of my, my life in relation to, like, my sort of racial and ethnic identity. Like, those things are sort of constantly in flux and depending on, like, a lot of factors that I don't have a ton of control over. And I feel like we really get... I don't know, really fixated on like wanting to know like what you are and like where you fit into like these like sort of pieces and slots. But for me, like the beauty of living and I feel like the beauty of art is that is that you are like actually like leaning into this ambiguity and you're leaning into the fact that like, you know, one day you're going to feel more like something, something than something else. And like your relationship with your sense of self is going to be shifting and changing. Um, and I feel like we don't accommodate that a lot. Like, I feel like we're just, whatever the, I mean, God forbid, like the discourse, or like whatever, whatever is like, I feel like just like the world we live in right now, I think cause we're also stressed out, understandably so. The world <laughs> is falling apart. The world is burning down. Like it's, it's very scary. And so I can understand why we would want to like have things that we could hold on to. But I feel like this piece of it, like the sense of identity, the sense of self, like what, where we fit in these various sort of categories, like, it's like delicious how it moves. And I wish that we would accept that and like understand that. 
It was interesting hearing you talk about reading as a child and because I had that similar experience of, um, you know, rebelling by reading as much as I possibly could whenever I wasn't supposed to be. But I was wondering if you could talk about your relationship with writing as a child. Were you someone who journaled or kept poetry or kind of how did you discover yourself as a writer? So when I was a child, I was so annoying. Oh, my God. So my everyone read to me. I was, like, very read to as a kid. I was, like, just lucky. Like, every member of my family was reading to me constantly. Um, and I, as soon as I could, like, hold a pen, I was, like, trying to do, I was trying to do my own stuff. And I did the thing that I think a lot of kids do, a lot of, like, early readers, which is try to imitate the things that I was reading. So I would write poems that were just, like, Shel Silverstein poems, which I loved, but they would just be, like, slightly different with my own illustrations, but they would be, like, the same illustrations <laughs> as from the book. <laughs> And my mom would be like, great job, Carmen. And, like, at some point, my father, my father had, like, stationery at work, and he would bring me home, like, these pads of paper, and I would write books, books. And I wrote this one that was called The Biggest Turkey Can't Find the Farm. It's about a turkey who's lost, and he's looking for home, and he goes to, like, a hotel, and he goes to the zoo, and he's like, is this my home? Is this my home? And it's like, not. And then he gets to the end, he finds the farm at the end, and then the last page is a roast turkey on a platter. <laughs> and the last line of the story is, I wish I did not come here. <laughs> and my parents were like, what the fuck? And they were like, okay. And like, you know, clearly I did not like invent that. Like, I'm sure I like, there was something I read that had like sort of a funny little turn at the end. And like, I had this idea that that would be like a very funny ending to a story. And so... Yeah, so I was, like, always kind of creating, and I was writing, I wrote a lot of poems, I wrote a lot of, I, you know, I, I would write chapters of novels that were not novels, and then I would actually send letters, I, oh god, someone gave me stationery, I became so powerful, I learned how to write a letter in, like, what did you learn, that, like, second grade or something, and I was like, you can write a letter to anybody, and so I found in my <laughs> Babysitter's Club books, which I loved, I found, like, the address of Scholastic, and I wrote <laughs> a letter to Scholastic, sending along a chapter of my novel, which I printed out <laughs> on the computer, and I was like, if you want to read the rest of it please send me a letter back and then also um i for the cover i want to use the illustrator from the babysitter's club books i really like the babysitter's club covers and so um it's funny my spouse works in publishing she told me later that like probably some delighted intern like probably like pinned it up on their you know their cubicle or whatever um but like yeah so i was really excited and interested in writing just forever. I mean, it's like been my whole life. And it's funny because I've also like had many other potential paths. Like I thought I wanted to be a doctor for a while until I like obviously don't remember any math. Like I, I'm bad <laughs> at math. Um, and also at some point I wanted to be a journalist. I, I majored in photography. I didn't even major in writing in college. Like I've always sort of been trying uh, other things. But writing was always this like very central sort of part of my life and my sense of self that I always return to. And I also, you know, I kept... I mean, I, none of y'all, I kept like a live journal, which was like a blogging platform from the 2000, from like the, um, and yeah. I kept a live journal for many years, which was like my first exposure, like writing for an audience. Cause I was like writing ostensibly for like my friends or whoever, but like I would wrote enough that like people started reading it that like were strangers that didn't know me that just like liked it. And I was like, yeah, then writing for an audience. And I was always like trying something. And like, I feel like my brain did that thing that I think a lot of artists' brains do, which is like, you think of the what is happening to you at every moment in the context of how it's going to be as a story. So like, even when something really bad would be happening to me, I'd be like already kind of shaping it in my mind as like a piece of writing. Like it would be like, a, it would be like, which I just think is like the narrative impulse. It's like, how is this what is the story of this? Like, how does this kind of, sh you know, get shaped in my, in my mind and then get shaped for the page and like for the reader. 
And so, yeah, I've always done that, like, my whole life. I mean, it was funny because it just took me, like, a long time to, like, it was, like, this weird winding path that, like, took me all those other places. And then, like, I was a candy striper. So, like, I'll be a doctor, so I'll be a candy striper. So, I was like, a candy striper for a while. I used to do all these, like, weird jobs, and I just tried all these different things. But, yeah, eventually I was, like, I came back to it, you know. It was finally after, like, many years of trying other things. I was, like, I guess I'll try this writing thing. Um, and then... I loved it. And, it, and then it became a thing that I actually felt like I could do professionally, which was like, you know, obviously like that's the next big step, but yeah. Uh, hi. <laughs> um, I'm such a big fan of your work. Uh, you're a real inspiration to me as a writer, um, especially the way you sort of, you know, mix genre, genre with uh, literary styles. Um, but also it's, it's great. I'm, I'm a new teacher here and it's great to find out that you're here and not only here, but here teaching horror. Mm. Um, and you've talked a little bit about this, I suppose, already, but I'd just love to hear you talk more about, you know, how the, you know, literary fiction and genre fiction are not so exclusive from one mm. another, and also just, like, how it feels and what it means to you to to bring genre into this academic setting where it's not always been so historically yeah. welcome. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like this conversation about, like, what is it, yeah, what is, like, literary fiction or genre fiction? I mean, obviously, as someone who does what I do, it's been, like, I've been hearing this conversation for, like, many, many years. You know, for me, I think the way that I think about it that makes the most sense to me is I think of literary, I mean, obviously, literary fiction is its own genre that has its own set of sort of rules and its own sort of history and things like that. But I think of literary as, like, a style like, I think of it as a stylistic decision. So, like, you know, I'm very interested in psychology. I'm very interested in sentences. Like, I want my sentences to be... I can, nothing will kick me out of a book faster than bad, than bad sentences. I really hate it. Um, like, when, when something's not well-written. So, I feel like, you know, I have certain... There are certain ways in which, you know... And I, it's, like, it reminds me of... I, I did this panel years ago about, actually, creative nonfiction... But someone asked the panel, like, what is creative nonfiction exactly? Or, like, literary creative nonfiction. And someone said, it's nonfiction that is true down to the sentence. Like, the sentence itself is, like, a truth-telling device. Like, the, the order of the words, the way the sentence is constructed. And that, to me, feels like that's what lit literary is, right? Where there's, like, this, that level of sort of thought. And then genre, to me, is more like an organizing set of principles around world building. So, like, I just, I'm teaching this class right now, our first day of class, we, we like, literally wrote, we talked about, like, how sort of readerly expectations, like, what a genre is, is, like, what can a reader expect from this kind of story in terms of its relationship with reality? Um, and why does that matter? And, like, how can we use that sort of to our to our own devices? So, to me, genre is, like, a tool. It's, like, a thing that I have that, like, permits me to, like, expand my own thinking, subvert expectations, and, like, it just, it's a tool in my toolbox that I can use it. And so I feel like when I'm watching or reading horror or any other genre, I'm, like, a little, I keep I keep using this metaphor, and it makes no sense because raccoons don't carry anything, but I keep imagining I was, like, a raccoon with, like, a little satchel, and I'm just, like, I would like that, and I would like that, and I would like that, and I'm going to write that. And, like, I just, I just take sort of liberally from wherever I can, wherever I can, because I'm just very greedy that way, and then I get to, like, use those tools for my own devices, which is the pleasure of being the writer and the master of your own, like, domain, which is the page, right? And so for me, yeah, those things, like, they feel that they it can exist very easily in harmony, you know? Like, those things don't feel that they are, you know, historically, obviously, you're right. Like, certain kinds of genre fiction certainly were excluded from an academic setting. Um, the way that we think about, I mean, there's, like, these sort of two even distinct, like, 
like like literature traditions, like the genre world has its own set of magazines, its own set of publishing sort of rules, its own imprints, its own whatever, and like literary fiction has its own. But I think that like what I've actually found very helpful is observing that like even though there are these distinct ecosystems, these sort of distinct branches, I you could say of like the the sort of the history of these genres they also speak to each other. These are really interesting ways. Um, and so you can, you know, there's like these ways in which they, they interact and intersect with each other that I think I find like really interesting. And so, yeah, it's like a real pleasure. I mean, yeah, they don't seem like I've never, I've never, I mean, I grew up reading like Ray Bradbury, you know, like I grew up reading genre fiction. It was like such a huge part of my, and also literary fiction as well. Like there's just, there was a huge part of my life. And I feel like for me, the pleasure of of genre is like getting to like have all these like ways of thinking and these like also these like traditions and these like sort of histories that are speaking to you and like giving you space to like step up on top of them and be like hey now I'm, I want to do the next thing I want to like do you know and so yeah so it's been like a real it's a real pleasure and I don't think of any of those things as like exclusive to each other they're just like even though people do think of them and talk about them as that they're exclusive to each other but like to me like I, I there's nothing I hate more like I feel like we keep talking about like in terms of like certain films in the last like decade, like elevated horror. And it's like, okay, like I know what you're saying. Like you're saying horror films that aren't campy, that have a certain sort of sensibility and aesthetic to them. Like that's what you're describing. But it's like, well, I don't know. I feel like we get so focused on these like labels and these distinctions. And again, I mean, this is like back to what I was saying about identity, right? Which is I'm like, you know, I feel like we want to like put these things into categories and get like really focused on these like micro labels that will like identify. And it's like, why don't we just experience pleasure? Like, why don't we just experience narrative pleasure? Because that that is why we're doing this, right? Like, what is the point of any of this, you know, if not to be like, mm-hmm. the experience of this is like speaking to me, whether, you know, it's like, literary or not or it's like aesthetic or not or whatever like I feel like just and like also like letting people like I feel like we think so much about like canon like we talk about canon in this very like there's like a canon right and it's like things are in it or they're out of it and like we have these like distinctions being made but to me like every person has their own canon like work that speaks to them like work that they've they've read or watched or whatever that like then creates in them a distinct ecosystem of, of like art that then like results in whatever their way of thinking or their own art or whatever and to me that feels like a way better way of thinking about like what we should and shouldn't be watching or reading or whatever Carmen, I love something you said that most of what you write is completely unknown to you. Mm-hmm. So how can you teach it? Like, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> don't tell Baruch. Don't tell them. What are you teaching? <laughs> you're like, what are you teaching our children? Yes. What, how do you teach? And my other questions: Can you tell us what is the movie or TV show that you are working? Oh, um, I cannot speak to what I'm working. I cannot. The last thing I can tell you, I cannot. I am working on a bunch of TV projects right now, which is very exciting. But it's all. It's all. Hush, hush, as it is. Um, but very exciting. It's actually been a real pleasure to like get to work on it. Because when I was during COVID, I like wrote very little fiction because my brain was just traumatized and shut off. But I could write media stuff because I was co-writing with somebody else. So I could like get on a Zoom and we could like talk through things. And so it was actually the only thing I really did during COVID writing wise. Anyway, oh, how do I, how do you teach? Right. I mean, so great question. So I feel like this is the thing is like, you know, some people, I know a lot of writers who don't teach because they, or they teach, but they don't like it. And I, I mean, not to, you know, whatever, like I'm sure everybody in this room absolutely loves teaching, but I, I feel like there's something about like, 
like it's like everyone assumes that like if you're a writer you also have to teach to like make you know to like make a living or whatever and unfortunately we live in a culture that does not support artists and so you have to like make these kinds of compromises however i genuinely love teaching and when i I'm not teaching. I'm gonna, when I'm not teaching, it's like fine. But then when I am teaching, I'm remem- I remember why I do it. It's because I'm actually getting a chance to like articulate things that I take for granted as a as a writer. So like things that I just like sort of know instinctively or I like mm-hmm. do them instinctively. And then some student is like, I have a great question. Why X, Y, Z? And I'm like, oh, shit, great question. Okay, let's talk about this for a second. And then I, we have to kind of like go through it step by step and be like, you know, here is... Uh, here, here's why, or like, and I feel like, I mean, I've had a million moments of this this semester, I feel like where students have asked questions that I've had to like, and they will tell you because then I tend to go on and I like pause and I just talk through it and then like 20 minutes have gone by and I'm like still sort of meditating out loud on like this thing that the student has asked me. Because I, yeah, I feel like it's, you actually get a chance to like talk through the narrative problems and be like, why is it like that? Or like, and it's maybe a thing that like I sort of took for granted before or I like, yeah, let it just like, I just sort of did it or whatever, but then like having to explain it or like talk through it is really helpful. And I feel like also like craft, like I can talk about craft. Like I think also like what I mean once I say it's unknown to me is it's like, I can tell you like how I put a sentence together, how I write a scene, how I draft a story. I can explain that to you very easily. That part's not unknown to me, but it's sort of like where things come from is unknown to me. Like I truly sometimes will just like be sitting somewhere and a little like sentence will just like through my brain it's like where the hell did that come from I don't know my subconscious a ghost I don't you know it's like wherever whatever it's like and there's just like pieces of it there's like an energy to it where I'm just like I mean I can tell you how I did this in a technical sense like I can explain to you the process but if you ask me to say like how did you like why did you make like especially heinous I remember when I was writing that story it was weird. It was, I kept, I always describe it as like how you go to a gym every day, you like lift a certain number of weights and you can't lift any more. And then one day you go to the gym and you can lift like five pounds more. Right. And it's cause like you can literally track like your own progress. You're like, I got stronger in between yesterday and today, or I've been getting stronger and now I've hit that threshold and I can lift the stronger weight. And I feel like when I was writing that story, I was like, Oh, I'm getting stronger as a writer, but I could not tell you what I was doing. I was writing. I was like, okay, what if I just like delete the, all the episode descriptions from the internet. It's just the titles. And then I use the titles to like write. I was like, can I do that? Maybe, I think so. And then I was just doing it. And I was just like writing and being like, what is, what am I doing right now? And I could like describe to you what I was physically doing, but like, you know, or like I mistyped one of the characters' names as, so it's Benson and Stabler. I mistyped one of them as like, as like Abler, like I missed a letter. And then I was like, oh, what if they have doppelgangers that have names with one letter changed? And so then I had Henson and Abler who are the doppelgangers who appear in the story. So like, how did that happen? It's just like weird. It's like a mystery. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like the thing about teaching and the thing about just like talking about writing in general is like, you can always say, and people ask like, like, can you teach writing? It's like, well, of course you can. You can teach like craft. You can talk about like how, you know, how you come up with ideas, like all this stuff. But like on some level, there is a mystery like, there is a thing that you're accessing that it's like, whatever you want to call it, the subconscious, the creative muse, God, whatever it is that you think you're accessing, like you are accessing some mysterious portal somewhere, mm-hmm. and maybe you're filling that portal, it's your subconscious, like, with your, your experiences and your thoughts and your ideas, and then there's something that kind of generates in there that you don't fully understand, and then suddenly you've solved the problem and, like, you know, whatever. But, like, I feel like 
the piece of it's like you can teach all the craft, you can try to teach tons of craft, you can teach how to do like all the pieces of it, but on some level you cannot teach the one piece of it, which is the mystery, which is like the most, I'm a very like not woo-woo person, like this is not my way, like I'm very, but like I feel like there is like this, that that is to me like the biggest thing, which is like, and you have to like in some ways like submit to that mystery and be like, there's a piece of this that I do not understand. And like if you ask me to explain it, I, I, as I'm doing that badly, I will not be able to say it. I'll be like, I don't know. It's like just this thing that happens. But I feel like that's the beauty of it is, is like teaching someone the craft or like discussing like the craft, how you get to the, the edge of whatever this like hole is, this portal. And then you're like, but then you got to look in the portal. I can't do that for you. Like you got to do that yourself. Cause that's like very personal. And that's like, not, not my, my role or my responsibility. But I feel like, yeah, that's, that's what teaching is. I guess teaching writing. I don't know about any other, but any other discipline, but like, I feel like for me, like that, that is the piece of it that feels, but like getting to have to say that and think about that. Like that to me is the pleasure of teaching is have, is getting to like, think out loud about those sorts of things. Hey, uh, I'm curious if you can tell us uh, any more about what draws you to the short story form, since I know that your authorial debut was a short story collection, and that's not very common. Mm -hmm. Um, And also uh, about uh, a technique you used in your memoir, the footnotes. That's also not something I've seen a lot before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I love short stories. I always have. Like I said, I grew up reading Ray Bradbury, and I feel like the experience of reading... I mean, he wrote a lot of stories, because he actually... He fed his family on short stories. He would, like, write a typewriter for 10 cents an hour, and he was, like, frantically writing stories and selling them to, like, support his family. And you can tell when you read, because some of those stories are like, eh, they're okay. They're like... <laughs> you're like, eh, you wrote this really fast on a rented typewriter and tried to feed your kid or whatever. But um, some of them are, you know, great. And when you read a short story that is great... I mean, I, I describe it as like reading a great novel. It's like being beat up for hours and reading a good short story. It's like being popped in the nose really fast. It's just like the single blow that will just like knock you on your ass. And like that to me is like, that's my preferred experience is like being, um, so I just really love the short story because I feel like it offers like such a like concise, like the, the, the sort of the structure of it is perfect. I mean, like again, everybody, and like, I'm, I'm not a novelist by trade. Like I'm trying to write a novel right now and like, who knows if I'll succeed, but like, that's a whole different like set of skills. It's a whole different animal. But to me, the short story is just a perfect, compact form that like does what I want to have done to me as a reader. And so I also want to do that to the, the readers of my stories, which is like, like just sort of pull you in, tell you something really quickly and urgently, and then like push you away and then be like, now you got to go deal with that on your own. Right. So like that to me is like the, that's the pleasure of the form. And it was like, it's, yeah, it's hard because it's like not a form. Unfortunately, in the US at least, like, I mean, people, because they don't, like, as collections don't sell very well. This sort of the, the, well, this is like the, the wisdom in publishing, whether or not that's actually true or self fulfilling prophecy is like sort of another question entirely. But, you know, the short story, we read short stories like individually in school as children or as like, you know, in, in, in high school and middle school and stuff. But we never read like collections of stories or like to sort of see how they all kind of speak to each other. Right. And so I, this is sort of my theory as to why, like, if they don't sell very well, insofar as it's about like, you know, the kind of country that we're in or whatever. It's, it's just that in public schools, we don't teach short story collections. So people don't know how to read them. And so there's just this like weird poetry collections as well. Like, we read a lot of individual poems, but not like collections of poems. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like as a form, it's just like kind of misunderstood. And the fact that I sold a collection is a mirror by itself is a miracle. Like I still marvel at this every single day because like I, my agent was like, well, we could try. 
we'll see, you know, like, we'll see if we can actually do that. So yeah, but it's, it's just a form that like gives me so much pleasure. And whenever, if you recommend an author to me and I go to the store or the library and I see a collection and a novel, I'll always pick up the collection first. Mm-hmm. Like always, I always mm-hmm. want to read the collection. So that's just, yeah. So it's just like, I don't know, it's a form that just like, I really love. It really speaks to me as a reader. And so I, and I really like writing them as well. And I think in short stories, I feel like writers think in different lengths. Like I had a teacher who, who wrote fantasy novels and she thought, she was like, I think in trilogies. She's like, my brain like organizes story in trilogy form. And I was like, okay, so I don't do that. Uh, (laughs) I think in a far less viable, uh, you know, financially viable form. But yeah, my brain does like, I've like tried to write novels and like it'll just like finish itself at 25 or 30 pages. And I'm like, wait, I was going to write a whole novel of that. And it's just like, it just ends itself like against my will. So who knows? Um, what was the other question? It was, oh, footnotes, right. And so, yeah, so footnotes like, you know, for the memoir, it was funny because at first I, I used footnotes because I wanted to actually like, you know, I was doing a lot of research and like, I'm not an academic by trade, so the research I was doing for this book was, like, kind of new to me, like, in the, you know, converting sort of, like, research material into prose. And the thing that happens is I was learning all this information that was, like, really interesting, but, like, didn't fit in the main body. I mean, literally, it was like, mm-hmm. I want to tell this story, but, like, I can't find a place that it will fit in this part. So I'm just going to, like, pop a little footnote in there and, like, tell that story in the footnote. Boom, yeah. done. But then also I was thinking about you know, work that I've read that uses the footnote as sort of more of a creative gesture. So like not just as, not as citation and not as like even like an additional piece of information doesn't fit in the main body of the text, but as like a creative thing. So like I have a friend who wrote this really beautiful novel called The Questionable Shape. His name is Bennett Sims. We actually read him in class. And, you know, he, it's a, it's a sort of zombie, speaking of like genre literary mashup, it's like a sort of a literary zombie novel. It's like a David Foster Wallace sort of zombie novel, basically. And it's this beautiful meditation on like memory and consciousness. And there's like footnotes in the book and it's, he literally meditates on the very fact that a footnote is like a grave, like your eye like travels down through the page and like lands at the bottom. Right. So like literally just the object of the footnote is like its own sort of like has its own sort of energy. And so that kind of way of thinking about the footnote is like really interesting to me. And so I ultimately ended up like doing some, like some kinds of play, some kinds of like extra material and then having these weird little like prose poems in the footnotes about um, mythology and like sort of the tropes of the story we're fitting into. And it just offered me this space to kind of play a little bit and like put material that wasn't really fitting anywhere else and like make sort of commentary, which made the audiobook version kind of hard because we had to just cut them because like there was just no way to like put a footnote in an audiobook. But um, I do really love, yeah, there was like a really fun process and chance for me to get to think sort of more like, again, like sort of more, like, think about, like, what is the, and this is what I mean with the little raccoon with the satchel. Like, it's like, what does the footnote offer me as a writer? Like, what, what is the pleasure of the footnote? Like, what can I, what can I take from the use of the footnote for my own ends? And like, that's what I did. And it, you know, offered me something really sp- specific for that book. And so I really, I don't know, really appreciated that. And they let me do it. They let me do all of it. It was great. It was so exciting. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed that interview. I know we had a great time speaking with her and um, having follow-up discussions after 
with her, yes. <laughs> yes, that was really great. She's a very generous thinker and uh, I'm, I'm very like a uh, friendly interlocutor, very ready to engage with us. And yeah. uh, we, we really appreciated that. Yeah, it was it was really great. Um, I particularly like the things that she was saying about short stories and short story collections and how, you know, we, we teach short stories, but it's rare that we teach the whole collection. And it really got me thinking about using that uh, in in place of a novel in one of my classes in the future. Yeah, I also like appreciated her uh, different ways of discussing intertextuality, the way like she's like in dialogue with different genres, authors, uh, theories, and how like she's thinking of how all of these uh, sources are informing her work. Yeah, it was an amazing interview and she's absolutely fantastic. If you haven't had a chance to check out her works yet, Please do. You can tell even just from that little snippet of reading that we included that she's she's got a style all of her own. So before we wrap up the episode, we like to leave you with a couple of recommendations. If you want to check out some LGBTQIA plus Latinx works beyond those of our author today. Yeah, so I'm going to start by suggesting that you check out Marcos Gonzalez Pedro's Theory. Uh, Pedro's Theory is a literary exploration of race, immigration, sexual politics, family, and masculinity through the lens of a first-generation gay man who is the son of an undocumented Mexican father and a Puerto Rican mother. The creative nonfiction collection searches to establish a poetics of Latinx writing and literature. It moves beyond the borders of the U.S. and takes into account Latin American heritage, diasporic creations and tensions, and a multicultural network of references. Gonzalez built the book as a contrapunteo of interconnected sections. It displays a profound reflection on the ongoing impact of colonialism and coloniality, and coloniality is the non-legal legacy of colonialism in Latinx lives. I'm going to suggest Cemetery Boys, a book by Aidan Thomas. It's a 2020 YA novel about a gay transgender brujo named Yadriel. In his Bruhex community, and that's the word they use in the novel, uh, the men are spirit guides and the women are healers. Because his family has reservations about him becoming a brujo because he's trans, Yadriel is determined to prove himself as a true brujo. He ends up accidentally summoning the ghost of a former classmate, Julian, who doesn't realize he's dead, and having to solve the mystery of what's happened to Julian. The story takes place in East L.A. and includes characters with Mexican, Colombian, and Cuban identities. It addresses serious topics such as dead naming, transphobia, and more without it seeming forced. Right? This was the author's debut novel, but they have also published two novels since then that uh, I haven't read yet, but I'm looking forward to checking out. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Remember, you can share your thoughts with us about this and other episodes. We'd love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latinx Visions. And our email address is latinxvisions at gmail.com. We may even include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify. Hasta la próxima. Estamos a la escucha. Dale. Until next time. <laughs>